science is not its own subject. Science is really just a method of, of looking at the world and trying to, to bring order and explain things. For me, I think understanding science actually is really empowering um, and really frees you in the kitchen to be more expressive. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. And this week's guest has a fascinating background who truly followed his passion to create something wonderful to share with the world. J. Kenji Lopez-Alt is the former managing culinary director of SeriousEats.com and the author of the James Beard Award-nominated column, The Food Lab, in which he unravels the science of home cooking. A restaurant-trained chef and former editor at Cook's Illustrated Magazine, Kenji released his first book, The Food Lab, Better Home Cooking Through Science in 2015, which went on to become a New York Times bestseller, the recipient of a James Beard Award, and was named Cookbook of the Year in 2015 by the International Association of Culinary Professionals. He lives in San Mateo with his wife, Adriana, and his daughter, Alicia. Kenji, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. And I'm so happy that you're here. I wanted to start off because, again, and I alluded to it in your intro, your background is so interesting. You did not set out to do this. You went to school at MIT for some very different types of careers. Tell us about how you started out and we'll kind of work our way through your journey. You know, well, when I was a when I was a kid, um, you know, I came from a family who really stressed science. Um, so my, you know, my dad is a scientist and my grandfather's a scientist. Um, and so that, that was a huge part of my education growing up. When I graduated high school and went to college, I was planning on becoming a uh, biologist, which is what my father does. Um, and so I went to school for biology. After a couple of years of that, you know, I spent some summers in high school and in college um, working in labs. What I, what I eventually realized was that, you know, as much as I love biology and the actual um, study of it and the book side of it, um, the actual process of experimentation in biology is uh, extremely, extremely slow, uh, like like mind-numbingly slow. And, and you know, and, and I think that there are people who are good with that pace, um, who enjoy that pace. I wasn't one of them. So, you know, I, I realized that, you know, I'm, if, if I continued with biology, I was going to be sort of relegating myself to um, this life of misery for the next 10 years or so before I, you know, before I could move beyond a research position. And I just wasn't prepared to do that. So I decided to take the summer um, after my sophomore year of college, the summer off from academic work, uh, sort of went around looking actually for a job as a waiter in Boston. And as it happened, one of the restaurants I walked into uh, had a, had a, a prep cook that didn't show up that morning. Um, and so the manager of the restaurant told me that if I could work that day and I could hold a knife and work in the kitchen, um, that I could have a job as a cook for the summer. So I basically just said, why not? Um, I'd never really cooked in my life before, but I said, why not? And did it. And it turned out that I loved it. 
So, you know, after that, it was a pretty clear path. You know, I obviously was already in school and I wanted to finish school um, and, and get the most out of my education there. So um, I actually switched to architecture, which was um, another degree that I've been interested in. Um, switched to architecture, graduated with a degree in architecture, um, but then sort of immediately went and started working at restaurants full time um, right after graduation. And so, yeah, you know, that, that's basically how I got started down this path. Um, I, you know, I worked at restaurants for a number of years in Boston. Um, and then eventually what happened was that, you know, re- restaurants are great to work in. Um, I love the atmosphere of the kitchen. The one thing they're not good for is giving you the, uh, affording you the opportunity to really a- ask questions and get good rigorously tested answers. Because most of the time when you're, when, when you're working in a restaurant kitchen, you know, your goal is one thing. It's, it's consistency and efficiency. And, and your goal is to get the same food out to the, to the customer over and over again and make sure that um, it's consistent and good. So, you know, you don't, there's not really much time or money or, or resources devoted to asking, to answering questions. Um, you basically have to trust the chef's answer and that's it. So over the number of years, that, over the years that I was working at restaurants, I sort of had this kind of backlog of questions built into my head um, that I really wanted to know the real answers to, you know, like, why do we, why do we double fry French fries? Why do we have to cook pasta in this large volume of water? Why do we sear a steak over high heat and then finish it in the oven? Like all, you know, all these little questions. And um, eventually I was able to answer these questions or at least start working on answering these questions um, when I took a job at Cook's Illustrated uh, magazine as a test cook. Um, and that, that was sort of an ideal position for me. It was, um, it was, it was a place where I was able to bring together the two things that I really love. So, you know, science and food, um, and bring together and make sort of a living doing it. It's definitely a much better living than I was able to make as a, as a line cook. And, uh, I've sort of been doing the same ever since, um, recipe development, uh, writing and, you know, sort of researching these questions that, that have all, you know, used to plague my mind. And now I actually just get to answer them for fun. Uh, and well, and for a paycheck, which is nice. You know, as so many people, who have stories similar to your share, it's it's so often just a set of circumstances that kind of launches them in a, in a direction. So a line cook didn't show up for work one day right. and, and it just put you in, in a total different direction. And you know, it's how, let me ask you in terms of your time at Cook's Illustrated, a very well-known publication, how long were you there? I was there for three years. And then from there, you transitioned into something else. Uh, yeah, well, from there, I tra- so I, I left Cook's Illustrated mainly because um, I, we moved from Boston. My, my wife got into grad school in New York, and so we moved to we moved back to New York, which is where I grew up. So I was working I was working sort of freelance editing for Cook's Illustrated for a while, but eventually I took a full time job um, at Serious Eats. Um, you know, I, I started off working working at Serious Eats as a freelance writer. Um, I think at the time, the time that I wrote my first food lab story, which was in two thousand. Nine, I think October of two thousand nine, something like that. They were the going rate for an online story was like forty bucks a pop, something like that. Wow! <laughs> so um, almost nothing. Uh, we we pay much better now, but but um, at the time that's really what the rate was. And so I was, you know, I was sort of scraping by a living. Um, my wife and I were sort of scraping by with a, a grad student stipend and a um, you know and a few bucks here and there for me writing stories online. But you know, it was it was one of those things where it's like I was doing what I love to do. You know, um, I, I got to cook and I got to explore these things. I, I got to spend all my time doing the things that I really enjoyed doing. And it was at that point that I, that I think also, you know, I started seeing that there's an audience for this stuff. Um, and so that was really encouraging that it, it sort of, it, it made me realize that, you know, I'm making 40 bucks an hour now or 40 bucks a story now doing this, but there is this audience for it, which means that there's a demand for it, which means that if I keep doing it this way, you know, 
something, you know, it's, it's going to turn up at some point, so long as I can keep the quality up and, and keep the audience interested. And, you know, and so that eventually trans, transitioned into a full-time job at Serious Seats, um, where I was um, tasked with creating uh, and managing their, their recipe side. Because um, up until that point, Serious Seats was known as a food review site, not as a recipe or cooking resource. It was more about food news and um, the New York dining scene. So I, I was tasked with creating their recipe development site, which is what I spent, I think, the next like eight years doing, uh, building it up from scratch. And, you know, it was, it's just an extremely, extremely fulfilling job. Um, I think, you know, any, anybody who's in a job where they're basically just doing what they love to do um, will, will tell you that. But it, it was, it was, it, it's, it's, been, it's been really great working at Serious Eats um, and, and seeing how this stuff has developed. And Serious Eats is now one of the largest food sites on the Internet. Uh, yeah, yeah. Top 10. I'm not sure the exact position, but so, yes, yeah, one, of, one of the top 10, I think. In helping grow that from what it was essentially a restaurant review site to what it is today, can you share some of the big victories you've had and then what the obstacles were as well that you encountered along the way? You know, there's, there's no real big victories. It's all been a series of small steps. You know, I think making, making things incrementally better and just really putting our heads down and working. There, there, there was no sort of like aha moment, like sudden, sudden decision we made that, that brought us huge traffic. It's just been the slow organic growth from the start, which is, which is, I think, the way to build a healthy audience. Um, the couple of the big lessons we learned along the way, um, you know, what, one of the, one of the difficult things was deciding what is the site, you know, um, for a long time, it was a a huge mix of stuff. We would put out about 200 articles a week. um, And it was a mix of sort of gossipy news stories. Some of them were big, longer features. Um, Some of them were guides to eating in cities. Um, Some were recipes, some were interviews with chefs. It was, it was a whole bunch of stuff. It was, it was a little bit hard to manage in that sense, because there was so much stuff going on. Um, And I think it was also a little bit difficult for readers um, to figure out what the site was. So one of the big decisions we made um, and difficult decisions we made was to really narrow our focus down. And, you know, and we realized, well, you know, what are the most unique things we're doing? Recipes, for sure. That's one of them. Like, nobody else is doing recipes like us. Um, and then the other was, you know, large, full-scale features um, that are well-researched. Um, and so at some point about, I guess it was now about four years ago, um, we decided to massively cut down on the amount of content we produce. So we went from producing, you know, 100 or 200 stories a week down to about 10 to 12 stories a week, um, which is, you know, a, a 90% drop in, in, the, in the quantity of quant- content, something like that. But we really, we really tightened our focus um, and made it all about those two things, about good recipe uh, and cooking technique stories um, and well-researched features. Um, and when we made that decision, you know, it was, it was, it was a pretty scary moment, I guess. We were, we were thinking, you know, are we going to lose 90% of our traffic if we're producing 90% less stories? But as it turned out, um, it was, I think, the best decision we made. And um, we didn't take any hits in traffic at all. And in fact, our, our traffic growth has gone up um, at an even faster rate since we decided doing that. D- decided to do that. So, you know, I, I guess that, that, that would be the only one real sort of, sort of watershed moment in Serious Eats history. Um, the rest, everything else has just been a matter of, you know, um, making sure that it's always high quality and making sure that we're hiring the right people and sort of, you know, incrementally uh, building our audience and retaining our audience. And earlier on, you mentioned, you know, good organic growth, and you, you did that by having good, really narrow, specific content. Right, exactly. Yeah, we, um, we, we decided that this, this, is our, this is what we're good at. This is what we do better than anyone else. 
And so this is what we're going to focus on. Um, and I think that was one of the very smart decisions we made. Um, early on in the history of Serious Eats, we, um, we used to be competitive with, um, with Eater, which is another great food website. Um, uh, and both Eater and Serious Eats produced a very similar sort of set of content. And, you know, that made it more difficult for both of us. I think luckily both of us found, um, found our paths and we discovered what we're good at. You know, Eater is much, much better at these at, uh, sort of food news um, and, you know, stories about chefs and restaurants and things like that. Um, and Serious Eats is much better at recipes. Um, so that's sort of what the two sites focused on. And we, we very naturally and I think happily diverged paths, um, uh, which, which I, I guess is natural. You know, that, that at, at the, in the early days of Serious Eats, was, this was around the time when all of these, you know, the internet, was, internet food websites were becoming a big thing and everyone was trying to do everything. But now I think people have started to realize that, you know, specialization and really focusing on what you do best um, is the, is the right strategy? At least the successful sites have realized that. So you touched on something that I actually wanted to bring up to you: that the internet has changed a lot of things, and all of these food sites came up. But specifically, how do you think the internet has changed the way that people see food and have a relationship with food? Oh man, I mean, it's it's a, had a huge, huge impact. You know, um, so. There, there's the obvious, you know, there's the obvious like food porn and, and things like Instagram and, and all these, you know, food sharing sites where people and, and those types of things create trends. You know, they, they allow um, people to allow someone in someone in California to see what what someone in New York is eating. And, and that creates, you know, things like the cronut that that go from be, from just one shop in New York to world domination, you know, in the ma- in a matter of weeks. Um, so, that, you know, so that's one way. I don't think that's the best way the Internet has changed food, but that's one way. Um, the, the real, I think, cool thing that the Internet has done is that um, it's exposed us and it's, you know, it's made the world smaller. And it's exposed us to a huge variety of ingredients and techniques and flavors uh, that we previously could not be exposed to. So, you know, when 20 years ago, if someone was trying to learn how to cook a, um, a Sichuan dish, your choice, your only option, you know, if, if you're living in the U.S., your real only option was to buy a plane ticket and fly to Sichuan. Probably very difficult to do because you don't speak the language and the schools weren't particularly inviting to Westerners. Um, or you could say read uh, Fuchsia Dunlop's book, who wrote an English language book about Sichuan food. Um, these days, if you want to learn about Sichuan food, you can, you know, there are sites I, I can literally I can probably go onto Facebook or some social media site right now and literally find a live recording, um, you know, a live broadcast of someone in Chengdu recording a chef cooking something. I, you know, I have access to these to these techniques and, and, and in a way that I never had before. And I don't just have to trust a secondhand account of them. I can actually see firsthand how these things are done. Um, and so, you know, what I what I think this this has led to is um, an incorporation of, of techniques that um, in, into our everyday cooking that that were, you know, had never been um, had never been easy to incorporate before. Um, so, you know, when I was working at Cooks Illustrated, this was before the internet was huge in food. Um, when I was working at Cooks Illustrated, we did a number of surveys. And what we found was that most people had about 20 different recipes um, in their average rep- repertoire and that they would cycle through those recipes and, and they would repeat them, you know, once a month, you know, every, the second Tuesday of every month, they would make X, they would make their macaroni and cheese or whatever. But most people had a, had about 20 recipes that they, that they did regularly. Um, these days, that's not the case. These days, people go online and find inspiration on a daily basis for what they're going to be making for dinner. Um, they might rely on techniques they've learned in the past, or they might rely on met- certain methods they know or ingredients that they know they like, but they're out there searching for new ways to combine flavors and new things to do with those ingredients. And, and the internet is what makes that possible. You know, that was never, 
never, never that easy before. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. Certainly not. And then just from a, a cultural sharing standpoint, as you mentioned, you know, the, the Szechuan uh, recipe was a great example. You know, we're, we're now exposed to cultural influences, you know, which come along with food, which is really remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned that one of the ways the internet has changed things, I guess, for better or worse, is we have these food trends or, you know, like the bacon craze with, was one. I, I remember bacon was everywhere and then sriracha was everywhere. So when you guys see that, do you strive to incorporate some of that into what you're doing at the food lab? Or are you ahead of the curve? How do, how do the current food trends influence what you guys do? It doesn't much. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily influence what we're researching. The, the only way that it would affect um, what we do is um, it might affect what we share. Um, so, you know, if, if there's currently a bacon trend going on um, and we see that lots of people are searching for bacon recipes or, or tweeting about bacon recipes, then we might go into our archives and see what bacon recipes we have. Let's just, you know, share those on social media right now because that's likely to get a lot of a lot of shares, but it, it doesn't, none of those trends really define what content we're going to research um, because, uh, you know, our, our, the, one of the, uh, you know, this is, this is actually another one of the things we did on series seats that I think was a, a, a difficult decision to make, but ultimately the right decision. Um, we took out all the dates um, in our, in, in our posts. Um, you can still find the dates in the URL, but um, we took out the dates in the post. Um, and the reason that we did that is because, when Serious Seed started, it was it was literally a blog. You know, it was it was a daily thing where people would come to see the new bit of news every day. The way people use Serious Seeds now is not is not as a blog. They use it as a resource um, to to search for techniques and to find recipes. Um, and so, you know, what we what we realized was that our our evergreen content, you know, the kind of content that is not temporarily based, that's not based on a trend, it's not based on what's happening today, but it's based on something that people are going to want to continuously know. Um, that was our most valuable content. Um, and so by taking out the dates in our stories, um, it helped us sort of focus on the fact that what, everything that we're creating is something that is supposed to be timeless, um, you know, or, or could be potentially updated in the future, but it shouldn't be linked to a specific time. As with any change, some, some people in the audience didn't like that. Um, but overall, um, it, it's, had a positive, it's had a positive effect on the site, um, and particularly a positive effect on the way we think about the content we're creating. You know, so yeah, we don't, we don't really focus on trends at all because you never know when a trend is going to go out of fashion. Um, and so you don't want to create a piece of content that works now, but in a year, nobody's going to care about, you know? Makes a lot of sense. And, and I do just want to ask... Kenji, is the bacon trend over? <laughs> I mean, as, as a the height of the bacon trend is over, but you know, bacon is always popular because bacon is is delicious. I, I think the bacon as, bacon as a trend is probably over. 
I, I, I agree with you. I think bacon will never die. Uh, <laughs> I, I want to jump back to something you said at the very beginning, you know, just that you said that nobody was doing what you guys were doing and that you, you know, had this passion based on your, your science background, science and food. Well, first of all, let's talk about how those two things come together and then why what you're doing is so different than pretty much everybody else. Sure. Um, yeah. Well, I don't. I don't mean to say. I don't mean to say or imply that nobody was doing science and food because obviously um, there. You know, there's there's Alton Brown, there's Cook's Illustrated, there's Robert Wolk, there's um, Russ Parsons at the LA Times. These are all people who were doing science and food um, well before um, the Food Lab. Um, what we were, I think, what we were doing differently. Well, first of all, we were we were giving it all away for free. We were putting it online and giving it all away for free. Uh, and, and I think, you know, one of the other thing was, was we had a sort of more modern approach to it. Um, you know, Cook's Illustrated is probably the closest to what we were doing in terms of experimental style um, and, the, and the types of recipes. But um, uh, Cook's Illustrated is still, you know, it's a little bit uh, myopic, I think, in its view of, of food. Um, it, it comes from a very particular, um, very particular mindset of this, you know, North, Northeast um, American mindset. You know, Chris Kimball, the founder, um, is from Vermont and, and he had that sort of mindset. Um, he's since moved on, obviously he started Milk Street, which, um, does, is a far more sort of, uh, international approach, um, using the same sort of, uh, ideas. But, but, you know, when, when we, when I started the food lab and what we were doing on serious eats, it was, you know, taking that idea of food science um, and how science can apply to everyday cooking, but giving it sort of a much more modern feel and making sure that we were appealing to modern sensibilities um, and using the internet to, to its fullest capacity. Um, you know, back to what I was talking about earlier, making sure that we got influences from around the world and that we were respectful of cuisines from around the world. Um, so I, th I think it was that specific combination that I think really um, uh, struck a chord with people. You know, science applies to everything. You know, science, science is not its own subject. Science is really just a method of, of looking at the world and trying to, to bring order and explain things that are going on. Um, so, the, you know, there's nothing unique about um, how science applies to food. I guess, you know, I guess the, the unique thing about the way science applies to food is that, um, you know, cooking is one of, I think one, of the, one of the few things that pretty much every single person in the world is exposed to uh, at some point in their life. Many people are exposed to it every single day and practice it every single day. And, and, and it happens to be one of these, food happens to be one of these things where science is actually relatively easy to apply because um, you're already working with a relatively uniform set of tools um, and a relatively uniform set of, of reagents. You know, you know you're, you're, the ingredients that I'm using here in New York, are, uh, sorry, here in California, are more or less similar to to what people are using uh, in the UK or what they're using in New York or, or South America. You know, there, there might be difference in um, the specific type of meat or the specific type of vegetable or spices or whatever. But when it comes down to it, you know, most meat behaves the same way when you cook it. Most vegetables behave in a similar way when you cook them. And, you know, and, and heat is heat the world over. A calorie is a calorie. All of these things. So, um, so you know, when you start studying the science of food, um, it's, it's the kind of thing that I think is very easy for people to connect to because everybody has food and everybody has ingredients and everybody has pots and pans. It's very different from, say, trying to teach chemistry where not everybody is going to have the equipment needed to, um, or, or the sort of everyday familiarity with the equipment um, to be able to easily grasp the science um, and easily grasp sort of the experimental procedure that you would do with chemistry. Um, so I guess in that sense, food is unique. Um, it's, it's, a it's a science experiment that we produce um, three times a day. The one thing that I, I think a lot of people have asked me about is, um, you know, does treating food like a science, does that take away from the sort of the art or the soul of cooking? Um, and I think 
Absolutely not. Like, I, you know, there, there's this idea that that science and humanity or science and, and art are at odds to each other, but they're not really. They're sort of they're they're orthogonal. You know, you can you can ha- you can approach both and you can study both of them without um, without them affecting each other um, and without them detracting from each other. Um, and in fact, I think understanding science in many ways helps you um, with the sort of more artful side of it. Um, you, the way I think about it. Um, so um, I played a lot of music as, a, as growing up as a kid um, um, and, and still. But, you know, the way, one of the ways I look at it is that, you know, a musician um there is the there is the um, artful, um, heartfelt, soulful side of music, but there's also the technical aspect of it. You know, um, if you're if you're playing the violin, um, you have to have artistry, uh, but you also have to be technically proficient, and you have to understand how scales work, and you have to be able to move your fingers properly. Um, and and learning learning how scales work and learning basic music theory, um, it doesn't somehow make you less of an artist, and it doesn't detract from the art artistry. Um, it in fact gives you tools to be more expressive. Um, and it's the same with cooking. Um, understanding how cooking techniques work um, and why things work in a certain way, um, it doesn't take away from your expression. It actually gives you the tools to be more expressive. It actually gives you the tools to, to personalize your food even more. You know, someone who doesn't understand the science of cooking is sort of tied to a single recipe and trapped by that single recipe. Um, once you do understand the science of cooking, it lets you sort of um, stray from the recipe and know that you're going to be successful and know where you can stray from it and where you can't stray from it. Um, so for me, I think understanding science actually is really empowering um, and really frees you in the kitchen to be more expressive. I so strongly identify with everything you just said because as a psychologist, I see a lot of parallels. Psychology is built upon science. Neurotransmitters do certain things. The brain structures do certain things. Yet when you're in therapy with a patient, you bring your history, you bring yourself, you bring who you are into that. It's, It's like this area where the science and the soul kind of converge. And cooking essentially is the same thing for people. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's that's a very good way of putting it. Now, when you started the food lab at Serious Eats, how how long into that did you know you wanted to author a, a cookbook? Let's see. Well, I so the food lab started because um, my friend and uh, and boss, um, former boss Ed Levine, he he said to me like, you know, you love food and you love science, um, you should write a food science column on Serious Eats, um, and so. I said, okay. And that's, that's how the food lab started. Um, and as it turns out, Ed's wife, uh, Vicky. Um, and so after basically the second food lab article was published on serious eats, um, and it was clear that there was this huge audience for it. Um, you know, the, from, from the very first article it was, it was pretty much, you know, like a, an, an instant hit, um, drew, drew a huge audience, uh, very unexpectedly. But, um, but by, by the time the second article came out, um, Ed took me aside and he's like, you know, there's an audience for this stuff. My wife is an, is a literary agent. Uh, you should talk to her about writing a book. (laughs) And so I did. Um, so all all credit for both the idea of food lab as a column and the idea of food lab as a book uh, should go to Ed. So, so yeah, I talked to his wife and I, and I put together a proposal. And during that time, I also continued to write weekly columns and they continued to grow in popularity. And so that, that's, I mean, that's basically how it became a book. I'm, I'm very, I was frankly surprised that publishers were willing to take that kind of risk because it wasn't like I was a, a well-known author. You know, I didn't, I didn't have a, a platform as, as, um, um, as they, as they say in, in publishing, um, you know, and I, I didn't really have an audience to sell to, I, you know, there was the audience that was reading the food lab column online. Um, and that was a sizable audience, but it was still a very young thing, you know, it was still only a few months old. So it wasn't clear, 
um, that I was going to be able to keep it up or whatever. Um, but l- luckily, um, a number of publishers wanted to buy the book. Um, and, uh, and so that's, that's how it happened. What, what I find wild about the book, we were chatting about this a little bit before, and so e- even though, you know, you had your, your, your moment of luck in that kitchen when the line, sh- line cook didn't show up and then you, you started in, in the industry, this cookbook, a New York Times bestseller, uh, voted the best cookbook in 2015. What you did, essentially, the analogy that I think is apt is it's kind of like deciding you wanted to go into the NBA with no basketball background in college and winning the MVP. Because it's just probably, <laughs> it's probably just something that doesn't happen. Well, sort of. I mean, so, okay. So deciding at the beginning of college that you want to go into the NBA um, then and, and you win MVP, um, there, there's, still a, there's still a big space in between those two things where you practice and you put in the work and you, and you get better and better and eventually you, you win the MVP. Um, and, and, you know, and it was a similar process here. I, I didn't immediately jump from, from graduating with a degree in architecture to writing a, to writing a thousand page cookbook. Um, you know, I spent, I spent, uh, well, a long time. Um, I spent a number of years, uh, while I was in college working part-time at restaurants. Um, and then about five years, uh, working full-time in restaurants after graduating. Um, and, you know, and those five years were spent, um, working literally seven days a week, 16 hours a day, um, for minimum wage, it, it is true that that I that I got a degree in architecture, and then went on to write this book. But um, but I also spent a long time, uh, I guess, training to do it. Um, you know what? What I can say is that I never, until I started writing the book, um, I didn't plan. I never. It's, it was never in my head. Oh, I'm going to write a cookbook. Uh, all, I, everything that's sort of happened to me has, has just been a series of very lucky, I think, lucky decisions um, and and sort of moment to moment decisions thinking, yeah, that would be, that's, that would be fun to do. Um, and, and, you know, I, I guess I consider myself extremely lucky in that sense in that, you know, most career decisions I've made have been based on not having a five-year plan and not, and not planning what I'm going to do 10 years from now or five years from now, but really just thinking, you know, what, um, what do I enjoy doing? Um, and each time I came into a fork in the road, I took the path that led me more, you know, the, the path that looked a little more inviting immediately. You know, I consider myself lucky because I don't think everybody who does who who makes decisions that decisions that way um, ends up doing well. Um, I think it's a, it's a danger, potentially a dangerous way to make decisions. Um, in, in that sense, I think I am extremely lucky to have been able to find success just focusing on doing the things that I want. But you know, but I also know myself, and I and I've known since you know, basically since maybe middle school that if I love doing something, um, I'm going to put a lot more effort into it. I'm going to put a lot more work into it and it's going to come out better in the end. So that, that's been sort of my philosophy. It's like, you know, I, I could do biology, I could do architecture. I like those things. Okay. But I'm probably going to be spending most of my work day thinking, what am I going to do after work? And then after work, I'll come home and cook. So, you know, I might as well just make my whole work day doing the thing that I love doing. And if I, you know, if I do that, I'm going to come at it with more passion. Uh, I'm going to come at it with more earnest interest. Um, and I think, you know, that that's, I, I think, part of what comes across in the, the book and the column. Um, I, th- I, think, I think a lot of the reason why people enjoy the Food Lab column is because it's something that I'm genuinely passionate about, and I'm not just doing it because it's a job. I love that. I love everything that you just said, because it's essentially one of the show's missions is we want to get people, you know, excited about things they're passionate about becoming the best versions of themselves. And in doing so, if you're doing what you love, you're not going to be angry. You're not going to be stressed out as much. Relationships improve. Everything is better when you're doing what you love. 
Yes, that that I can tell you is definitely true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's next for Kenji? What's next? Well, what what's current is that my I, I just have a daughter. She's four and a half months old. You're four and a half months old now, um, and I'm, which is part of why I, I took a little step back at Serious Seats for my day to day functions. Um, I'm still I'm still writing my column, uh, the Food Lab. Um, I'm still acting in an advisory capacity at Serious Seats, but um, I'm, I'm not doing my day to day editing and managerial role. Um, I'm I'm basically right now a um, a full time father and working on a couple of projects on the side. So. Um, Full-time dad is what I'm doing. I'm really focusing on uh, on my daughter right now. Um, on my on I'm, during my time off uh, from that, I'm uh, working on my second book, um, which is due at the end of this year and will hopefully be out uh, hopefully by fall of 2018. Um, so I don't know when this is going live, but probably about a year from now, a little little over a year from now. Okay. It's about the same size and scope as the first book, um, but it focuses um, on a lot of techniques that weren't covered in the first book. So um, the first book mostly um, covered, uh, well, American cuisine um, and um, and a lot of sort of meat and potatoes and vegetables type things. Um, the new book uh, is filling in a lot of the holes. So a lot more international cuisine and a lot of techniques from around the world, um, a lot of recipes from around the world, um, also a lot more seafood uh, and a lot more vegetables as well. That's that's my big project right now. Um, the other one, I'm also um, my my wife and I moved out to California, um, San Mateo, which is you know a little south of San Francisco. We moved out here um, a few years ago. Um, so now you know I, we 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 bought a house and have a kid here now, and so I'm, I've been trying to find ways that I can uh, get more involved in the local community. Um, so I'm now currently working on a couple of restaurant projects as well, um, with some partners. So, um, I've partnered with some good friends of mine who are amazing bakers. Um, and we're opening up a, uh, a bakery called Bach house, um, in downtown San Mateo. And, uh, I've also partnered with a couple of, um, local bar owners and we're going to open up a beer hall together. So I'll be focusing on, um, the menu and the, the menu and the food there. And, uh, it's going to be called Verst Hall. Uh, W-R-S-T-H-A-L-L. Yeah, Beer Hall. Um, both of those projects are going to be open um, hopefully before the end of this year, before the end of 2017. That's fantastic. So bottom line, full-time dad. And when you're not doing dad things, you're just doing stuff you love. How yes. awesome. <laughs> well, and the dad, the dad thing is also stuff I love. So. Oh, absolutely. Well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> of course, there's nothing quite like that. Uh, Kenji, we're nearing the end here. And as you know, one of the things that I ask every guest that comes on is their biggest helping. That is, if there was only one thing you wanted listeners to take away with after hearing you on this episode, what would that be? I mean, I, I, I guess the, the, the thing that you should take away is, um, I mean, I guess it sounds cheesy, but I guess if, you know, if you make your passion your work, then it doesn't feel like work. You know, that, that's sort of been my life philosophy and it's, and it's worked for me. Um, I can't promise it'll work for everyone, but you know, um, all of these things sound cheesy, but you know, that that's true. And, and, and I think, you know, but, and, and when you start making your passion, your work, um, and you, you find that um, a lot of, a lot more over opportunities open up because you, you spend a lot more time doing the things you love. You spend a lot more time getting involved in the community with, um, um, of other, other people who are doing this type of thing. And you find that, um, you know, I think a lot more opportunities, good opportunities come your way when, when you're really passionate about what you do, you know, it, it's, it, it is extremely cheesy. It, it is sort of like the old idea that you make your own luck. And so, you know, I, I find, I, I consider myself extraordinarily lucky to be able to do this. Um, you know, but at the same time, it's like, I made the decisions to, to follow my passions and, and a lot of the, the opportunities that have luckily come my way have come as a result of, I think, following those passions. That would be great. And, and I can't remember where I heard this quote, but it, it was something along the lines of, you know, 
there may have been luck along the way, but the, the ultimate success was no accident because of the work and passion you put into it. Fantastic. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, Kenji, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me, <laughs> you can find me at my home web, which I'm not going to get my home address, but no, you can find me, um, uh, on social media. You can find me, uh, Kenji Lopez, all, all one word on, on Twitter and Instagram, or you can find me at serious seats, um, where I write a weekly column called the food lab, or you can find my book in bookstores. And we will put all of those links, including the link to Kenji's book, the food lab, in the Daily Helping app and in the show notes as well. Kenji, thank you so much for coming on today. I I had a great time with you. And for those listening, if you like what you heard, go subscribe to the show on iTunes. Leave us a five-star review because that's how other people find out about the podcast. Now go out there and do something nice for somebody else, even if you don't know them, and post it in your feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others.